Hi, everyone. I'm Mel Butcher. And I'm Michelle Redfern. And we're behind the Lead to Soar podcast. We've got a couple really fun things to share with you. And the first thing we want to share is our colleague, Susan Colantuno. She started a podcast called Be Business Savvy. Be Business Savvy. We highly recommend it. And it's a short form podcast where you hear directly from Susan. It's like having a friendly mentor in your ear. So check her out at BeBusinessSavvy.com. Over to you, Michelle. Thanks, Mel. Well, two exciting things from me, along with Be Business Savvy. Number one, The Leadership Compass. My very first book is due for release on March 26, 2024. You can find out more about The Leadership Compass, what it's all about. Of course, it'll be your ultimate guide if you're an ambitious woman leader. You can find more about that at michelleredfern.com. And hand in hand with the Leadership Compass book is the Leadership Compass boot camps. I'm going to do one boot camp a quarter for 2024 for just six women at a time. And you'll be working through in three weeks. So, yes, it's short, sharp, and high impact. All of the elements from the Leadership Compass and my 40 years of executive experience. So, you'll cover BQ, EQ, and SQ, and you will be positioned to have a career that soars. Again, you can find out about the boot camps at michelleredfern.com, leadtosoar.com, or if you can't find any of that, just drop us a line and we'll point you in the right direction. You're listening to Lead to Soar, bringing women the best career advice and mentorship from around the world. Lead to Soar is a production of a career that soars. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. The Lead to Soar podcast is recorded on the ancestral home of the Ho-Chunk Nation in Madison, Wisconsin, USA, and on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne, Australia. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of these lands and their elders past and present and welcome any First Nations people listening today, wherever you are. Welcome back, listeners, and uh, you've got my dulcet tones kicking you off today. And today we're talking about personal finances, and I'm I'm going to ask Mel to share some things that she's shared with our members in a career that soars about personal finances, specifically salary transparency. And there's a bit of a backstory. So for those of you who tuned into our season teaser, you'll know that there's a a backstory to to what we're talking about and where Mel took inspiration uh, to create this series of of posts that she she did for our members about, well, actually, I'm going to stop. Mel, what was your (laughs) inspiration? What did you post and what was your inspiration? So let's go there rather than me waffle on about it. I, I think you're doing a good job. My inspiration Well, I think that there are still a lot of uh, topics under the money umbrella and personal finances that people still see as taboo. And I wanted to explore in writing inside a career that soars, which feels like a very safe place to me. I wanted to explore some of those ideas and maybe try to break down some of the walls that we might feel around discussing finances. And I also wanted to plant within that my own personal salary journey, my presenting my salaries transparently to the members within in hopes that sharing my journey might help someone else on their own journey as they're trying to get a raise or negotiate a, a new salary somewhere. And I want to add to that, that um, I, I saw a woman in another group a long time ago do something like this, where she took screenshots of her LinkedIn profile and she wrote her salary over every job that she'd held. And she included a little narrative about how she made certain salary jumps in her career. And even though she was in a completely different field from myself, a completely different specialty area, it really helped give me an idea of, okay, this is how a professional can move up. This is how a professional can advance. It is possible to make large jumps and 
So it gave me some hope. So there's two parts to to what we're going to talk about. One is is our own, as you called it in your post, our own money stories. And some of that is the stuff that we feel about money that's been ingrained in us or we've been marinating in it in um, since birth. So the, I think there's that part. But then the part that, and I really enjoyed reading that because I too uh, have my own money stories that I used to tell myself, including polite girls don't talk about money because that's vulgar and blah, blah, blah. But the second part that, that you've just talked about was here's the process. Here's the process that successful women have followed to elevate their salaries and the steps that they've taken. And for me, I look and I think, how would a 25-year-old me benefited from someone like you sharing that with me back then. Mm-hmm. Enormously. <laughs> so so that, that combo is really, really powerful. And, you know, I, I will be completely and utterly shamelessly transparent here. This is why, one of the thousands of reasons why our network exists, because we are supporting women to reach their full potential. And that includes their financial, economic full potential. And sometimes you need an external person to say, do this. Yes. And that means you, dear listener, we want to see you out there thriving and just getting everything out of life and your career that you can possibly get. I don't want to derail too much here, but you reminded me of something that that I want to say. I have encountered colleagues, women colleagues, who tell me things about how they are not super motivated by money. And I'm thinking of one person in particular who said this to me. And on some level, this person didn't have to be motivated too terribly much by money because their partner was also in a in a high income career. And So I want to speak to those people for a moment, women who might feel they have to say, uh, well, I'm not, I'm just not that driven by money. It's just not that important, et cetera. I want to challenge you to think about how you approach your advancement could potentially impact your colleagues, particularly your female colleagues that are coming up behind you. Women need to think about the the sort of cascading things that can change if they push on their own salary increases etc it it impacts more than just them and i think so I- what you're alluding to is that leadership casts a long shadow and what's your legacy going to be as a leader so i I got another build on that too is let's check our privilege when we say things like that because i feel like money is a little bit like oxygen no one really cares about it till you haven't got it and when you haven't got money and i have certainly been in that position when you don't when you aren't wealthy when you aren't affluent when you aren't comfortable it is really really important and you become very money motivated because you want to feed your family yourself so for those women yeah what is the legacy that you're leaving for the, the for those that follow you you know we often talk about we are supporting the women that come after us how will the women that come after you benefit from your behaviors and your actions Mm-hmm. So I think that's a that's a nice call to action. So if you're tuning out because you go, yeah, well I'm okay, okay, you might be, but others may not be, and you could really make a difference. So thinking about when this started, you talked, you wrote about why money matters and how your own background and the the, the your upbringing, what started to really concern you, and so. I think that's a really healthy way to start is let's examine what what those stories are that we tell ourselves about money, including the I'm okay, <laughs> the one you've just talked about. But So talk to us about those stories that, that we tell ourselves, our money stories. All right. Let's let's just like open up all my baggage right here. Well, you know, this is this is you know, you you have written in a very private safe space, but I so I, th- I think let's let's elevate it a little with respect to, you know, you and the the folks that that, that you've you've talked about, but you know, what are those stories that women 
can t- can tell themselves. What do we what do we tell ourselves based on our backgrounds and our upbringing, Mel? And what should we pay attention to? Yeah. Okay. So I, of course, can only speak for myself. So I'm I'm going to talk about some of my background and maybe some of the things that that led to. So this is not something that I talk about much at all. Frankly, there is a lot of baggage here. And there's also a lot of shame associated with some different pieces of of my background. Some subsequent poor choices that, that I made when I was younger. And I want to try to give myself some grace, you know, bad choices made when I didn't know better. But it's still hard. And it's something I struggle with. I grew up in a family that was very military. My father was career military. My grandfathers on both sides. So both my my dad's dad and my mother's dad were career military. And all of the women in my immediate family were primary education school teachers or secretaries. And I'm have to date myself here too, right? Because easily accessible internet uh, didn't really come about for me until really late in high school. So like at some point in high school, I can't remember exactly when is when all of those like early old school emails started to proliferate and like old school chat rooms and that sort of stuff. Good old Yahoo chat room. (laughs) Right. But at that time, it wasn't the space of like learning where you could find information about, I don't know, options in life, like careers. So I, it was very, it was actually much more social then, wasn't it? It was very, I think for the lay person. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So I grew up in a small town in Texas with a very limited view, very limited access to see what people could do with careers and in particular what women could do. I didn't see in day-to-day life, certainly not in my family, women in any kind of high-powered positions at all. And even more so than that, what what's become more poignant to me as I've gotten older is that I never saw people in business. I never saw people around me who were business people doing business. And so the concept of business for me growing up was extremely limited, rudimentary, and I associated it a lot with only the things that I could see, which would be like the retail environment. So the world of something like financial management or business services or logistics or operations, all those kinds of things were just completely not within my view. I didn't understand that any of those things existed or existed as options for career paths. And so I was woefully unprepared to go to college and make good decisions. And I mean that in every way. I mean, make a good decision about what to study, what the implications of my choice would be for job opportunities, what the implications of taking out student loans would really be. I just didn't, I didn't know these things. I went to a pretty crappy school, public school in small town, Texas. The phrase that's that's running through my head right now is that well, you can't be what you can't see, but I, you know, I prefer to say you can be what you can see because I think that, that there's a couple of things there. One, it honors those trailblazers and things like that. But the reality was that you had a, a smaller worldview than you have today. So I think the first thing to acknowledge for all of us is that the, the, the bottom line is there's not a lot you can do about the past. In fact, there isn't anything you can do about the past other than learn from it. So Mel, you learned, I'll, I'll let you tell the story, but I think you learned the hard way about those choices. And then you decided to shift your mindset around some of the language that you were using, that you had used. So you said you you did your degree. It wasn't necessarily going to catapult you into, well, a higher earning capacity kind of roles. But what, what was the moment when you thought, actually, I need to get myself into a position where money matters 
and I need to do something about it. Do you think was there a was there a pivotal moment? And I and I'm guessing this is in your twenties. You're about in your twenties at this stage. But what was the moment when you, I guess, said I need to unlearn what I've learned and learn some new things about being financially secure for the rest of my life? What what do you think the moment or moments were that led you to that? The reason I'm asking is, and we talk, you know, I've talked about stop, breathe, reflect. How do we how do we become disciplined to to pay attention to and not lose the lessons that life is teaching us so that we can make different choices the next time around? Or as in your doing, I mean, yes, you made different choices, but you're also educating others. But how do we learn to pay attention to those signals, messages, thunderbolts, whatever they are? Yeah. Well, I think we need to trust ourselves when we get into situations that feel bad or unsafe and find a way to make an exit. And I I just think that's so important for women on the front of both relationships and careers. So I'm just not certain that I had a particular moment where let's say money became important because frankly, the message that I got very consistently when I was younger is that there's, there's not enough money. There's not enough for the thing. We have enough to eat on and we have enough to put a roof over our head. But for all, all of these other things, there's not enough money. And mm. it, it feels petty to me now. And I wish that I had had a mentor when I was a kid to kind of walk me through thinking, thinking about this differently. But you know, when I was a kid, we couldn't afford the new clothes and the new shoes that I wish that I could have been wearing. Certainly, I wasn't, you know, getting a new car on turning 16 or any, any ridiculous thing like that. But as a child, I carried a lot of shame around that. And I wish that I had had a mentor who could help me see it differently because I, I see it differently now. Mm. Uh, so, the, so the idea that I, ha- like, I have to make money or I have to make more money in order to survive, that was kind of, it felt ingrained in me from an, from an early age. And I, I think I've also had a lot of ambition for a long time, but really unclear as to where to direct that because I just didn't know how to succeed. The first time that I went to college, I had no idea what engineering was. I I really, truly, if you'd asked me then, I probably probably would have said something like, well, I mean, I think it's something that like smart people do. It's what those smart people over there do. It's not what I do. Um, I wouldn't have understood at that time anything about financial paths and careers. I wouldn't have understood how someone could make a career out of a scientific path. I I got what I would consider a, a useless degree the first time around in college. And I was lucky enough to get a decent job after getting out. And it was for the federal government. I worked on a team with lots of former former military people, uh, some retired Marines and whatnot. And so that was my early 20s. And I did thrive in that environment. But very briefly, I was in a relationship with someone that worked in the same region as I did for this agency. And there came a point when my boss's boss, one of these former Marines, he pulled me into his office and he offered me a promotion. And it was a it was a promotion that was kind of like, if you're going to stay at the agency, you have to take this promotion. And it would have been a pay raise. It was um, certainly a, a lot higher level position than the one I held at the time. And the person that I was in a relationship with at the time was extremely verbally abusive and he was bordering on physically abusive. Basically, I made a decision at that moment that I couldn't stay at the agency because I knew that I couldn't I couldn't end the relationship and successfully carry out my career there. And I knew that I wanted to go back to school at some point for something in science and math, because after those several years of working in the professional world and really realizing that I could do well, I knew 
finally that I could go back and do whatever I wanted. And I just had to figure it out. And so I left the agency at that point. And that was the worst time to leave a job. It was during the 2008-2009 economic downturn. And so for a while there, I looked for a job. And my big aha in that experience, and it was a terrible experience, but I'm glad I learned this lesson. My my big aha from going through that was that no one cared what was on my resume. No one cared the level of work that I had done or what I had managed or that I'd advanced in those roles. In that in that moment when the economy was so so turned down. It's not that there weren't opportunities out there. There were, but you're only going to access them if you had a network, if you had someone who was going to refer you in to the position. And that was when I really understood, like, I have to build a professional network. And that totally changed how I approached going back to school and how I spent my time when I went back to school for for engineering. It's interesting because there was one piece in what you were saying about, you know, the advice, if you're going to stay at the agency, you need to take this role. So you arrived at a set of crossroads, which, you know, let's face it, there were all those extraneous circumstances as well. But clearly being in that professional world, you were then able to say, aha, I've got my background of we can't afford that. You then, through a range of reasons, experiences, what have you, knew that if I work, I can have that. And it's interesting because I was so resonating with some of the things that you both wrote and and I just heard, which was when you work, you get money. And when you get money, you can have the things. Or for me, it was about choice. Mm -hmm. When you've got money, you've got choices. And I think that's, you know, Lesson number one, folks, is when when you have money, you have choices. But let me let me ask you. I'm catapulting you forward a little bit now, Mel, because I really want to get into this: the stories that we tell ourselves, but also the expectations that society puts on women about money. So, Mel, you and I both, some would say, money hungry, money driven, too ambitious, <laughs> whatever it is. So, you have actually had that feedback, and you know, so that so there's two things going on here. Hey, I've got this background which no one knows about and nor should they, but I've just got this feedback. Mm, you're very money-driven. What do you do about that? Because we get told not to, not to be too overt, you know, play small, be, wait your turn, um, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah. So I think, I think what I do with that is I take that as a data point that that for me is a political data point. It's a piece of information about how someone uh, is perceiving me and it tells me how I might need to present myself to that person differently. Mm-hmm. In the past, I might have gotten upset about it, but I'm not upset about it now because it's just a piece of data about someone else's perception. I'm not going to change how I pursue things in my career based on that, but it might change how I present myself to that person. And yeah, let's just emphasize again, money is fucking important and yes. you need it to have choices in your life, including when you've got to make a choice like, I have to get the fuck out of this relationship. Or I have to get out of this relationship. I need really good health care. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to live in Australia where we have a reasonable free health care system. But in the US and other geographies, that is a real consideration. Absolutely. You know, it's, I think as I always say, money is choice. And you can do what you like with it. So I think I want to go back to the lesson though. This is real. Let's not lose this listeners. So it's a, when someone gives you feedback about the way you're presenting, too ambitious, too money driven, too whatever, it's a data point that you can say, aha, not to stop being ambitious, not to stop wanting to be financially and economically secure for my lifetime. This is a way to say, how might I present myself to the people who are going to enjoy my company, whether it be at work or whatever, in a way that's going to work for them? 
And, and I don't want to be flip about it, but this is the beauty of having really good emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence has a bunch of different categories, including how do you read the damn room mm-hmm. and how do you manage relationships? How do you manage human dynamics to progress, progress your career, progress your organization, so on and so forth. So I think it's a really good lesson. Take the feedback as a data point, not a thing of not permission to play small. Right. So I think it's a really, really good lesson. Yeah. Cause that, you know, that person who gave me that feedback, I mean, they don't know how much student loan debt I'm dealing with. Yep. They don't know that, you know, when my parents die, I'll inherit zero dollars. If anything, I'm going to be having to, to fund assistance for them later on. You know, the person who is, is showing up with that feedback, they don't have the full picture and that's okay. They don't, they don't need to have it. Yeah. And so I think we don't know. So for those of us who are giving advice to driven women or women that we might think, gee, she's just after the money, really stop to think, do I don't know her backstory. I don't know the life she's living. I don't know the pressure that she's under. And frankly, when I look at women in my age group who are the fastest growing cohort of homeless people, here in Australia. So women over 55, fastest growing group of homeless people and not necessarily rough sleepers, the people you see sleeping in the streets, but they will be the the women who are couch surfing or staying at their kids or, you know, because one divorce, a lack of superannuation, but low paying jobs or no paying jobs. And suddenly they hit an age where they've got no money. So let's let's get really clear, folks. We don't know the backstory of anyone. So when she presents as someone who's just after the money, take her aside and say, absolutely understand you've got some motivators. Here might be a way for you to express that in a way that's really going to win hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's great advice for both us who are driven to have choice as well as those who might be the recipient of someone who hasn't yet formed the skills to be nuanced about that approach. So thank you, Mel. Okay, so let's let's jump forward. So let's jump forward to the post that you shared with us. You were inspired by the one of the women in your network about this is what I did. This is how I moved through the ranks. And importantly, this is how I elevated my salary. So as a person who loves a good process, and as I as I've said, you know, I would have really appreciated this 25, well, God, 30 years ago. You're listening to Lead to Soar, a production of A Career That Soars. A Career That Soars, or ACTS, is an organization, a networking platform, and a place for career women to learn and connect. Our founder, Susan Colantuno, envisioned a group that would embrace women from all backgrounds and support one another towards achieving their highest career ambitions. Learn more about what you can get from ACTS by visiting leadtosoar.com and clicking the ACTS link. Tell us about this process that uh, you shared with us and, and the thoughts around how to, what are the strategies and the tactics that you undertake to elevate your salary? Yeah. Well, what I shared in the second post with the group w- was really the line of my career and the salaries and raises that I got along the way. And Basically, I just added some commentary with each of the sort of jumps up that I that I got. And, you know, I want to point to one in particular that I got early in my engineering career, because I, th- I think it's so poignant and highlighting the, the strategic networking piece that you and I are harping on about so frequently. So very shortly after I'd graduated from school with my engineering degrees, I had been working at a consulting firm for about six or seven months, not long at all. And uh, they had offered me, when I started, a salary that was like right in line with the average for the civil environmental engineers at that time. Like at that year, it would have been like totally 
average. And there were some problems at the firm, problems at the office, but I couldn't really tell what was going on. I didn't have connectivity to high enough level people to know what was going on. But it was just like you walked into the office and people are on edge and you could tell that something was up. And around this time, I was working with a mentor. And this is a person that that I pursued a relationship with through a virtual mentoring program through the American Society of Civil Engineers. So she and, she and I would get on a call every few weeks and talk about things. Without telling me, she heard about the challenges that I was having. You know, she could hear them in our discussions. And so without telling me, she referred me to another consulting firm and I got approached by a team that was looking to hire me. And so, of course, I was eager for the position because I could tell things weren't quite right at the one that I was sitting at. But I also recognized that not just because the company approached me, but even more importantly, that because I had been referred to them by a client of theirs that I had the upper hand. So my mentor worked for a company that was a client of this consulting firm representing multiple millions, if not tens of millions of dollars worth of work. And so I knew that they were going to hire me. I knew that they were. And when it came time to talk about the salary piece of it, I, I aimed what felt for me like very high. I <laughs> threw out what felt like a very high number. And the salary that I ended up getting at that point was something like somewhere around a 35 or 40% raise from where I was coming from. And, you know, this was seven months out of school. And what I wanted to emphasize sharing this in a career that soars with, with the women there, and certainly the women listening to this podcast is that I, you know, me working for seven months didn't make me worth 35 or 40% more. What made me worth more was developing a strategic network and understanding how to leverage it. Absolutely. I'm going to quote you directly to, to summarize that all the major jumps I've made in salary have been a direct result of the concerted work I put into cultivating my network, especially relationships with potential advocates. And absolutely. So you, and so this story that you've just recounted has so many elements to it, including a sponsor who put you in a position of power. Uh, so you held the power in the, in the, in the negotiation because you had knowledge and you know, irrespective of whether you're going into a salary negotiation with a sponsor, with a powerful sponsor like you had or not, you had knowledge. You had knowledge that gave you an edge, that gave you an opportunity to negotiate for what you absolutely wanted. I think the other thing there, Mel, is that sometimes, a lot of times, in fact, we know that to achieve a significant jump in salary, you need to leave your current employer and go to a new one because it is hard to get a significant jump like that within an organisation for a whole range of reasons, which we won't go into here around remuneration and benefit strategy, but you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready when that call comes. You've got to be ready to take the leap. And being ready means knowing what you want from a financial perspective, also knowing what you want from a work perspective, but it's about having a bit of a plan. Now, I feel slightly duplicitous saying have a plan because I never had a plan, but I actually did. My plan was go up, earn more. That was it. And it really was the will I take this job? Am I going up? So becoming more senior, am I going to earn more, significantly more? Those were the two benchmarks. And yeah, I did some kind of interesting jobs, but the view I had was the more senior you become, the more money you earn, the more choice you have. So again, we're going back to that choices. You jump into that that role. And, and the other thing I want to play out here is sponsors. You know, that, that who is, as Carla Harris says, who is the person that's banging the table on your behalf? Who is that person? So cultivate your network. Strategic mentoring can turn into sponsorship. So please think about, is your mentoring, is your mentor strategic? Is your mentor 
someone who knows who you are, the problems you solve, the value you create, the outcomes you deliver? And will they go into forums and say, you have to employ Mel? Absolutely. And there's there's a few pieces to this. I know we've talked about politics on on a previous episode. And I think it's one of one of our best episodes. People want to pay it forward. Oftentimes, it doesn't mean they're always going way out of their way to look for someone to sponsor or to look for a way to pay it forward. What it means is that you make strategic decisions in your work and how you show up and the places that you show up in your professional realm so that you increase your chances for luck. You increase the chances of likelihood that you're going to be seen by the type of person who might want to sponsor you. It's not always blatant. And in fact, I think that the relationship I described a moment ago with the the woman that I was working with through the American Society of Civil Engineers It's great that that worked out, but it's very rarely going to be a setup situation like that where, you know, you're working with someone through a formal program. It's most of the time it's going to be informal. And so there's a I think there's a certain amount of EQ, political awareness and strategy to what you do. And then also finesse in how you show up to the relationships. Absolutely. And that showing up to the relationship. um, And we we talk about, we talked about in the previous episode or one of our previous episodes about having a powerful introduction. And this is really make it easy for people to say yes to you. Make it easy for people to sponsor you. Make it easy. So this is, is, it is, it's about bringing it and showing up. So where I want to really hone in on now, again, is that concerted effort. So you were very, very planned and you had a process around your moves and, you know, there's a process around it. So, you know, I was a little more organic, earn more. That was it. And I don't know that I was as, I wasn't as strategic as you because I wasn't investing in my networks as, as, as much as you did at the same age. But you have really invested in, in finding out stuff. And one of the stories that I recall you telling me when, when you were deciding, I'm kind of going a little bit back now, but this can apply to roles. It can apply to study or professional development. When you were considering, okay, which degree will I do? You researched all of the the earning capability or earning capacity of different industries, didn't you? Yeah. And so, look, I'm not going to say that I made the right decision. I'd probably do things differently if I could do it over again with all the knowledge I have now. So, you know, I was just doing the best that I knew how to do because when I decided to go back to school the second time, I still didn't have line of sight to really what what career paths were out there and what was possible. I, I just didn't. I had been working for the government and and I had some limited exposure to to some different things through that work. But what I did was I went to the government website, the Bureau of Labor Statistics publishes what's called the Occupational Outlook Handbook. And I went on there and I searched for what jobs use math and science and like kind of pay okay. And what they also project on there is like the likelihood of uh, job growth over the next decade or whatever. So a a metric of potential stability, right? So I knew that I was going to go into debt to go back to school, that I had to have a job at the end. I couldn't just do something for fun. And So when I did my little search, the job that came up with math and science and like a pretty good outlook and okay pay was engineering. And I was like, okay, guess I'm doing engineering. No clue what I was getting myself into. I'd never taken trigonometry or physics or certainly not calculus. So I was, it was very much uh, jumping into the deep end, not not knowing what I what I was signing up for. Mm. 
there, yeah. So there's a lot there for me. <laughs> so there was that piece. And then you also had, again, a mentor. So this is the power of your networks who talk to you about the choices that you might make about well, going into consulting. But I would broaden this to the choices we make about which organization are we going to join? What role will I take? What division do I want to go into? This mentor said to you, the more people you are feeding work to, the more earning potential you have. So we, we know, rightly or wrongly, we know that there are roles and divisions in organizations that are going to that that will have more earning capacity than others we say women we we have to get in charge we have to we have to become exposed to where the profit and loss statement is born and and managed so tell me about that the person who said that to me was somebody that I met in in towards the end of my engineering school work and let me say that the you know the thing that I did differently when I went to school for engineering than I'd done before is I spent all my discretionary time on things that would help me build my network and that looked like a lot of different things sometimes it looked like me showing up to literal networking events and luncheons, but sometimes it looked like me building student organization because that was a tool that I could leverage to build my network more. That was a that was a conduit for me to have an excuse to approach professionals for all kinds of reasons. Just going to interrupt there. I spent all my discretionary time on building my network. There you go. Knowledge bomb, folks, because that was part of the plan. That was my plan right at that point. And so I encountered this person through part of that that networking, and they were speaking specifically about the consulting world. The consulting world is if you want to have the higher or highest earning potential, you have to be the closest to where the money's coming in the door. So in the consulting world, that looks like business development. And and so when we're making these decisions, again, I, I come back to have a plan, do your research. So every single one of us is going to be at some kind of career crossroads at some point. And I hope dear listeners for you, it's it's the crossroads of which opportunity do I take? And part of your due diligence is saying, what's my plan? What is my goal here? Uh, you know, Michelle, go up, earn more. Mel, how do I have the most potential, et cetera, et cetera. But what's your plan? And then say, will this move, whether it's an up or a lateral move, will it meet this long-term plan that I have? Then who in my network is going to help me achieve this move. So I'm going to go back to what happened in, you know, your sponsor saying you've got to employ Mel. People, we want to hiring managers. Do we want to roll the dice and get whatever random person we can get through a hiring process and hope like hell we've got it right? Or are we going to hire someone we know, we respect and we trust so that they've been in our network? Or someone in our networks putting their political and social capital on the line to say, I know, I respect and I trust this person, you must hire her. So I cannot overemphasize the importance of the network being part of your career plan. And mm. and being, as you said, I spend all my discretionary time building my network. Mel, I want to talk about now, because we could talk about this forever, about taking risks. And this is to move up from a salary perspective. And I alluded or talked about it before. We sometimes have to move employers because it's not going to happen within our current employer. Won't, well, it's not not going to happen, but typically... And I would certainly say my lived experience is to move employers means when I got the biggest jumps. You've experienced the same. What would be your advice right now about doing that to our listeners? If someone say, oh, but I really, I really want to earn 35 or 40K more, but I'm not going to get that in my current employer. What do I do? Oh, that's tough. I also wrote about this in, in my post. I did at one point switch companies and made a pretty lateral move, both in level and in salary. And I don't recommend that. I know why I did it and I know why people do it. It it happens when you're so frustrated with a job situation or a manager mm -hmm. that you get to this feeling of just like, I got to get out of here. I just have to kind of hit reset. And yeah, you need a soft landing place right. for a little and while. I yeah. And in, in hindsight, I, I wouldn't make that decision again. I felt very 
lost in the moment and unsure where to direct my frustration and how to get the outcome I wanted. If I were presented with that situation again, I would handle it differently. However, going back to your question of, you know, somebody wants a raise and they're not going to get it in their organization. One thing to think about is if you're being underpaid, if you are making less money than the market rate for the work that you're doing and the value that you're bringing to the business, that's a huge problem and probably a misalignment between your own values and the values that that business or organization is leading. So let's call a spade a spade, right? Recognizing that that's what's going on in your workplace. uh, that's That's a problem and you probably need to find an exit sooner than later. Okay. That might not be uh, the case in for everyone, right? Like maybe it could be the organization's having a rough time and they maybe they really can't find it in the budget, but maybe you really want it, need it, deserve it, etc. Mm. I, I don't know. I might mirror this one back to you, Michelle, with respect to w- like women and loyalty. Wow. Yes. This is a, this is a whole other topic that I want to discuss that you right? and I are going to discuss <laughs> around loyalty. And I did make a comment on Twitter last week that I really encourage women not to describe themselves as loyal in, in any of their assets because a Labrador dog is loyal. And I'm sorry, but loyalty gets taken for granted and it, it creates a mindset as much as I wouldn't would like that not to be so. So I think, again, know what you're worth, know what the market says you're worth, know what a potential other employer, know what to say to another employer. So if you're in the mix for a, a role and, you know, put it this way, we, we've done some discussions around salary negotiation, more so how to ask your boss for a raise. But, you know, there, there's a lot of resources out there to say, how do I ask for the right amount of money? Well, of course, without letting too much out of the bag, Cindy Gallup says, you know, name the largest figure that you can name without bursting out loud. And and in a very buoyant market or employee market at the moment, that, that's probably, there's never been a better time to do that. But research, research, research. Don't go into any situation without knowing your stuff. Yeah, I agree. Let, let me just add to that, that there, there's only so much you can parse out online. This is another place where your strategic network is so important. You need to have people in your industry that you can tap into and have a transparent conversation about salaries and what organizations are giving to people in this day and time. You need resources that can tell you real information, not just Glassdoor or whatever. And, you know, part of what, let me say this overtly, sharing my my salaries in the posts that I did inside a career that soars Part of what I'm trying to do is encourage other women to do the same, whether you're in my industry or not. And what I also think we should be doing is tapping into our male allies and getting salary information from them. Because when, when someone comes to me and they, a woman, this happened to me once quite a few years ago, she came to me and she was like, Hey, I, I think I deserve a raise. I'm not really sure what to ask for. The first place I wanted to go because she's an engineer, the first place I wanted to go was to ask a guy so I yeah. could get a man's perspective, somebody that's in the same industry, same geography to say, this is, these are the numbers that I'm seeing. And, and I think so. I know we have to wrap it up soon, but this is, and I had a conversation yesterday with another woman in my network around salary transparency. Um, and I'm not obviously not going to go into the details, but I share very openly with my network about, again, my salaries, my how I charge, you know, all that kind of stuff because I see women getting ripped off by the system. So, yeah, let's – so for the, the male allies, on, um, I was going to say on the call, but listening – Share. When a woman comes to you and says, what range should I be aiming for? Use the the knowledge, the wisdom and the access to data that you have to help her catapult. So there's a bucket load, bucket load in, in what we talked about. Let me just recap. Number one lesson, money stories. What are the money stories that you are still telling yourself? There's stories that society put on women about money and how we should be around money. And then there's our own lived experience. To Mel's point, rather than I can't afford that, how might I be able to pay for that? My own thing was if I work, I get money and I can buy stuff or have choices. 
And that leads to mindset shifts. What are the mindset shifts that you need to undertake to be paid what you're worth and to have lifetime economic security? And it may be for you or it may be for others. So at the very start of our conversation, okay, you might feel like you're in a pretty good position. You might be affluent or comfortable or whatever it may is, but maybe, but what can you do for other women who are still pushing on really firmly closed doors? Could you share salary ranges like Mel has done? Could you guide and mentor other women? Could you be asking for better pay so that the women who come after you in your role don't have to push on those those very firmly closed doors? Number three, have a plan and your plan might be as simple as mine was, go up, earn more. And then when I'm, when I'm at a point where I've got choices, yeah, then I'll work out what else. Or as meticulous as Mel was, what industry do I need to go into that's got the most runway to meet my econ- lifetime economic needs? Do your research, know your stuff, know what you're worth. So that plan includes okay, it might be a tactical plan. Within the next 12 months, I'm going to change roles. My role has to meet this level of income for me to even consider it. And go and read stuff about Cindy Gallup. Find that number that you can say out loud without bursting into well laughter or tears. Number four, hugely important, cultivate your network. What part of your discretionary time are you devoting to (laughs) cultivating your strategic network? Because that network will be made up of potential sponsors who are going to open, not just open doors for you, they are going to be in at the table, banging the table on your behalf to say, you have to employ this woman. They are going to be supporters who are going to surround you with information and other data points when you're in negotiations. And of course, it's going to be our, our network. We're going to have salary transparency. So share Share your salary and and then she will share hers with you. And he, for the he's listening, please share your your salaries with your strategic network. And number five, and we didn't go into this too much, but take risks. And those risks could be, you know what? I'm going to make a move. I'm not going to get what I need to get in the next 12 months in my current employer. Yes, I love it, et cetera, et cetera. But my lifetime economic security means I have to leave my current employer and go to my next one. So that ability to take a risk. Yes, there's all sorts of stuff about around risk taking and, and you will know your own risk appetite, but what's the plan? And do I stay or do I go? Sometimes going feels like a, a big risk in the moment, but I always use my lovely wife's five-year rule. Is this going to matter? Is this what feeling I'm having right now going to matter in five years' time and will it stop me from doing what I need to do? Or is it I need to overcome that? So take risks. So Mel, I think you've, you've given us some very, very, very big knowledge bombs there. But in closing, and I'm particularly talking, I guess, aiming this at, well, I shouldn't aim it at any particular career stage, but certainly in the early mid part, for those women who are listening in the early and mid parts of their careers and thinking, yep, I need to earn more. What could be the one thing, you know, my one thing things, um, what could be the one thing that they could do right now to achieve or start on a path to achieve lifetime economic security? I would bring us back to strategic networking. There's just nothing that I have found more valuable. And it's also unpredictable because humans are unpredictable. So it's not like you're going to be able to look at a crowd and pluck out the people who are going to be your best advocates and sponsors. It's more about our little saying, you can't just turn up, you got to show up. You know, maybe there's some reflection around if you're, if you're not working in a world where you feel motivated to show up, maybe that's an indicator that you need to be in a different space or in a different organization. But investing the time to build relationships with people pays off in ways that you just can't predict. You just can't imagine. I love that. And of course, you know, I love the saying, don't just turn up, show up. So show up in service of yourself, show up in service of your lifetime economic security. Yeah. Well, Ms. Butcher, thank you very much. That was a uh, very (laughs) enlightening episode. And thank you. uh, And I appreciate that 
you kind of had to go, well, you did have to go over some territory that still you're processing and navigating. And I appreciate your vulnerability and your, your realness in doing that. Thanks, Mel. Thanks, Michelle. This has been another episode of Lead to Soar, a production of A Career That Soars. You can reach Michelle Redfern at michelleredfern.com and Mel Butcher at melbutcher.com. Join us inside A Career That Soars at acareerthatsoars.com.